Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome back to part three. And this is the last part of the spleen. And we talk about um, what processes involve both the spleen and the liver. And you can think about malignancy and non-malignant conditions. So think lymphoma, metastasis, such as melanoma. We also can see infection, particularly in immunosuppressed patients, candidiasis, aspergillosis, often involves liver and spleen. And in fact, with fungal infection, we also can see renal involvement as well. And then, of course, sarcoidosis. And I mentioned sarcoid because sarcoid is always the great mimicker. We know that from other studies. If I look at this case, I could say lymphoma. I could say metastatic melanoma. This was sarcoid. Sarcoid can involve both organs and really have an impressive appearance. I always mention when I give lectures that I've seen a number of cases where patients had CTs for trauma or just some vague symptoms, and all of a sudden the diagnosis is metastatic disease or lymphoma, and the patients are relatively asymptomatic, and this is just the classic reason why. Sometimes you see sarcoid multiple lesions, but only in the spleen, as in this case. And here it is in the coronal view very nicely. And you can see here the patient has adenopathy in the chest. So sometimes you can make the diagnosis from the chest, but you can see it can be hard. If you look at this case, you surely would consider lymphoma or some malignancy in the differential diagnosis. But again, younger patient, particularly female, look at the chest, think about sarcoidosis. But you can see it is difficult if I just mix my slides up. It could be very problematic. Another example showing multiple splenic lesions with very nicely shown also on the coronal views. Again, shown here. Here's another example, an enlarged spleen with multiple focal lesions in the spleen. And uh, just a very good example of sarcoidosis. So some of the facts about sarcoid, most common in the 30 to 50 age range, more common in African-Americans, pulmonary complications are the most common cause of death, and the patient's symptoms range from fatigue to fever and weight loss, so you can imagine why it's very easy to at least think about malignancy. Sarcoid commonly involves multiple areas in the abdomen. Although you don't see often the splenic and liver involvement, the truth is up to 94% of patients have liver involvement, though most are asymptomatic, and the most common finding is hepatomegaly. The uh, patient's spleen up to 59% of patients with sarcoid have splenic involvement. So that becomes a very, very important thing also to be aware of. And again, the manifestations of sarcoid rate range from splenomegaly to solitary nodules to multiple nodules. Now I mentioned another cause of splenic and hepatic lesions is infection. I mentioned candidiasis, immunosuppressed patients, the lesions are often small and slightly irregular, as in this case, or in this set of images, just a very good diagnosis. Often it's subtle, and you say, well, maybe I'm dealing with tiny cysts, but you typically will have a prior CT scan, which was negative, and these are new findings, and the patient is febrile. Now, we also should always remember splenic vascular pathology, aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms. Aneurysms usually are incidental findings, while pseudoaneurysms often present with symptoms. If you look at numbers, splenic artery aneurysm is the third most common intra-abdominal aneurysm, up to 10% frequency. It's more common in women, but it's likely to rupture more commonly in men. 
It's associated with atherosclerosis, hypertension, portal hypertension, cirrhosis, pregnancy, and liver transplantation. When you look at pseudoaneurysms, it's usually some preceding condition, pancreatitis, trauma, post-operative complication, or peptic ulcer disease. Now, in terms of presentations, pseudoaneurysms, which can rupture, present with abdominal pain, melana, hematemesis. And the fact is that pseudoaneurysms rupture in about one-third of cases, and when they rupture, mortality is 90%, which is why when you find an unsuspected pseudoaneurysm, you typically have to manage the patient aggressively. Now, we see commonly splenic artery aneurysms, and most people with splenic artery aneurysms under 2CM will do nothing. Sometimes the aneurysms are calcified or calcified in part. Sometimes you see them and they're thrombosed. Sometimes you see multiple splenic artery aneurysms. Nice example here of an incidental splenic artery aneurysm. Here's a nice example in a patient with portal hypertension where the aneurysm is sitting. You don't really see the splenic artery, but it's off the splenic artery and it's sitting by the hilum of the spleen. Another example of a small splenic artery aneurysm, but you can see there's a second aneurysm present as well. So splenic artery aneurysms are not uncommon to be multiple. It's also not uncommon, as in this case, to have splenic artery aneurysms and other aneurysms, including GDA involvement. Here's a nice example of calcification, but a patent lumen to the patient's splenic artery aneurysm. And when you do 3D, you really can see the very dense calcification of that patient's aneurysm, very nicely shown here. Look at the size of this splenic artery aneurysm. Now this one, you can't even coil because it's too large. You would have to resect. There it is on the 3D maps, beautifully shown, this large splenic artery aneurysm. Just a very, very impressive example of that. In this case, the patient left up a quadrant pain. There's an inflammatory process. You can see a subtle bleed, a subtle aneurysm. This is the appearance of splenic artery pseudoaneurysms. It's often a sequela of pancreatitis, and it's not your first time having pancreatitis. Usually, it's you've had multiple episodes of pancreatitis, and the vessel is simply worn down by the pancreatic fluid, eroding the vessel and giving that patient pseudoaneurysm. Nicely seen here as well. When you look at this example, again, small pseudoaneurysm, and you can see that part of it has been thrombosed. You can see that part of it seems to be walled off. But again, these are the ones, although it's small, can be very problematic, can easily rupture, easily bleed. And whether you embolize or resect, something needs to be done. It's not your basic leave alone lesion. This was a patient, very interesting. Um, the patient has this aneurysm. Now the patient had fell down and uh, had, was discovered down while exercising. He was worked up at another hospital, but they found nothing but some blood. And you can see here the obvious pseudoaneurysm. The thing was, they were looking for pseudoaneurysm. It wasn't like they missed it, but he had so much blood it had compressed the pseudoaneurysm. This is a couple weeks later, and now you see the pseudoaneurysm with the blood around it. Just a beautiful example, and here's a couple more views of that. Very nicely shown. And here it is in the coronal view. So this is just a beautiful example of a pseudoaneurysm that bled, and this patient could have died. The patient was very lucky. 
we see at times what looks like splenic artery aneurysms, and I'll just show this example. This was sent in for a neuroendocrine tumor, but it was a splenic artery aneurysm. And, you know, it's in the pancreas, or it seems to be this calcification, which is why it was thought to be a neuroendocrine tumor. When you look at it on the coronal view, you begin to wonder, but when you look at it on the 3D view, you can see it's coming off the splenic artery. The splenic artery is focally dilated. Just a beautiful example of a splenic artery aneurysm simulating a neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreas. Very nice example. And again, you want to be careful not to make that mistake because even in retrospect, looking at it, you begin to worry about a pancreatic mass. Now, when we talk about non-neoplastic processes, one important one to remember is infarction of the spleen. It can be segmental or global. When it's segmental, focal zones of the spleen are involved. One or more infarcts can be seen. We can see also global infarction, where the entire spleen is infarcted. And this could be due to trauma. Often it's due to surgery. So etiology of infarcts, classically endocarditis, atrial fib, sickle cell disease, lymphoma, and splenomegaly. But I always think about uh, endocarditis. Again, appearance, wedge-shaped. Areas of decreased attenuation extend to the surface, can be single or multiple, and as noted, it can be global. Nice example here of a classic splenic infarct, very nicely shown. You can see it here as well. Good visualization of the vascular map. Or here, look at the left upper quadrant. The entire spleen is infarcted. This patient was post-Whipple's procedure, had some post-operative complication, you can see there's no flow to the spleen. There it is in the coronal views. Just a very nice example of global infarction. This patient would need a splenectomy. This is not an uncommon source of fever. It's more common to happen in other surgeries, perhaps renal surgery, but it can happen in pancreatic surgery, and that would be no surprise as well. Here's a patient with adenocarcinoma of the pancreas with splenic infarction. You do get vessel involvement, and so the vessel compromises there, and you can get infarcts, very nicely shown on this image, and on this image as well. The um, 3D mappings nicely define the infarct, the cystic component, the sharp margins, and so you're not going to confuse this with a tumor. Another example, patient had prior GDA bleeding with coiling, and post-procedure had flank pain, and now has nearly a global infarction of the patient's left kidney. Here is two more views very nicely showing you that, and here it is on the coronal view as well. Now, when you mention infarcts, you really have to mention sickle cell disease because that's the classic for auto-infarction of the spleen. In patients with sickle cell, as they get older, the spleen may be really small, one centimeter or less in size. And it's classic, maybe a big liver, maybe a dense liver, but small spleen, densely calcified. You'll see obvious bony changes as well with sickle cell disease. Beautiful example there or here, pleural effusions, very dense calcified spleen, very small. Sometimes it's barely a sliver and I've seen people say there's no spleen present. Now you don't always need to have the small spleen. Here's a little bit of a smaller than normal spleen, but you can see the enhancement changes. Here it is very nicely with diffuse splenic calcification. So a range of appearance uh, in sickle cell disease. 
I showed you before under the multiple lesions, the fact you can see things like candidiasis or aspergillosis as abscesses. But splenic abscesses in general are fairly rare. Patients often have predisposing conditions, diabetes, alcohol abuse, IV drug abuse. One challenge I find with splenic abscesses, it was the only finding the history and clinical presentation and CT appearance can look the same for a focal abscess as it does for a process like lymphoma, primary splenic lymphoma. So it can be a challenge. So when you look, it's a low density lesion. You're not gonna call this a cyst. There's something infiltrating, this is a bad lesion. The differential to me is lymphoma versus abscess. Again, clinical history will help you, but you can see why there could be overlap. Or in this case, with a very large abscess and some perisplenic fluid, this patient worked at an army facility, and I won't tell you what germ this was, but it was indeed pretty, pretty bad. Another example of the aspergillosis, multiple tiny lesions in the spleen, best seen with uh, contrast, best seen on venous phase imaging, and again, wide window becomes critical, and contrast is critical. At times, you will not see these lesions, even when they're multiple on non-contrast scans. Now, let's go back to the first slides we started with, and we concluded that most splenic lesions are benign. If you don't have symptoms or a history of malignancy, further workup is only needed if the splenic mass is seen in conjunction with other findings worrisome for malignancy. So this article goes a long way to making you feel more comfortable about watching things. Conclusion, in patients with known malignancy or with constitutional symptoms and pain localized in the left upper quadrant epigastrum, although most masses will also be benign, such patients require further assessment. So if there are symptoms, then we don't mess around. But if it's just some vague abdominal pain, you see a splenic lesion, I know it's going to be benign, and we treat it as a benign lesion. So let's summarize what we said. Lesion detection, we're good. Lesion definition, discrimination, not so good without that many tools to really help us at this point. We are good in certain select cases, multi-phase imaging, looking at etiology of the lesions. So I think we can do that much better now than ever. Number of articles for AI doing that. And again, think about minimizing unnecessary intervention. Most lesions are benign. That's a very important factor. Think about it that way, and I think you'll do great. So with that, here I am leaving CTSS headquarters in downtown Baltimore, Maryland. Have a great Thanksgiving. Unfortunately, when you read this or hear this, it'll be a couple of weeks post-Thanksgiving, so I'll wish you a happy pre-Christmas or pre-Hanukkah. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Bye.